thank you, Lauren. I'm Daniel Wagner. I'm the executive pastor of ministry here, and it's really a privilege for me to stand up here and uh, bring God's word to you today as we continue another week in this series, How Happiness Happens. And I'll tell you, I've just loved this series personally in the small groups that I lead and the friendship that I have here and in some of the pastoral counseling that I've done. This has just been a timely word, I think, for all of us, regardless of young or old, what the condition of your life is, really whether you're in the best or the worst season, this has been a word that's been really profound for people as we've thought, what really does it look like for us to be happy? Really, actually, truly happy in the Christian life. Does God have an obligation to our happiness? What part of pursuing happiness do we have in our own life? So if this is your first Sunday here, welcome. And this is your first Sunday in this series, I'm glad that you're here. I really would encourage you to go back and listen to what Robert has led us through so well as we looked at things like how to get past your past and secrets that happy people know, like the freedom from the need for power. It has been a great walk through the book of Philippians. So if you'll turn in a Bible, if you brought it with you, or if there's one in the pew in front of you, there should be, to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we'll pick up today. Like I said, I'm Daniel Wagner. I'm the executive pastor of ministry. Robert Green, our senior pastor, is not here today because he is in Lesotho in uh, Africa, that's in Southern Africa, a nation located there serving with Reclaim Project. Reclaim Project is one of our partners that we love. They office in the second floor of our building over there. So Reclaimed has their physical address here. Not only are we connected geographically, but we're connected in spirit. We love the work that they do, particularly with orphan care, uh, serving in really vulnerable communities in uh, North Mississippi and the Delta and Marks, but what they're doing in Lesotho in Africa is what Robert is spending some time doing. So he's over there with Brett Varnhill, their director, who's a member of our church, serves as a deacon here. Excited for Robert to come back in the next couple of days. He'll be back here next week, and he'll close out this series as we look at the last little part of Philippians 4. But as we've talked about this series, and I've particularly been struck by it, I've come to this quote by uh, Augustine, St. Augustine. Apparently, if you are a town in Florida or a street, it's Augustine, but if you're talking about the Bible, then it's Augustine. And this is what he would say. If I were to ask you why you have believed in Christ, why you have become Christians, every man will answer truly for the sake of happiness. I love that. There's something bound up for the person of faith with Jesus and with our happiness, with our joy and the way that it makes a marked difference. So I'm glad that you've been with us through this series as this is uh, the second to last week. We're gonna look at something that honestly is strange. I think it's hard for us to take in as I've thought about getting up here and preaching to you today. I always pray for people. I've loved serving here. I've been here for seven years, so I know a lot of you and I've known a lot of you for a long time. And I think about your life, who you are, what you're going through, what you've been through. And I want to preach a really contextualized word here, right, for the people that are in this room and in our 930 service before this. And when I think about this concept it just doesn't really fit well with our worldview in the American West. We are so go and do, action-oriented, proving and then proving that we need to prove. It's hard for us to really wrestle with this concept that we'll look at today. I'm going to put two things on the screen. One, a question that I've asked myself, and if you're honest with yourself, you have two. And the second, a claim kind of an existential statement that you could give in a time of dread or self-doubt. And they read like this. If I died today, would my life have been enough? And the second is like it. If I just had that one thing, you know, the one thing, then I'd feel like my life was complete. 
my life would feel complete. What is that thing for you? Would your life be enough if it ended right now? Where do you draw what we'll look at today, your sense of contentment? See, contentment is what we're going to look at today in Philippians 4, and it's interesting that we see in 4.13, one of the most out-of-context Bible verses, we see this in a rich chapter of the Bible, thread in between anxiety. Anxiety is idolatry of the future, that you would see and believe what you believe might become something, and you'd exhaust yourself and build a future that may never happen, that you're consumed by doubt and what could be worry, and really worry for nothing often. Settled right in between a word about anxiety, which is so timely in our world, so timely in the life of our church that Robert preached last week, and then following a life of generosity, a response to who Jesus is and what he's done, a response to the way that we've been invested in by the kingdom of God in our local context. We find this word nestled right in the middle on contentment. And as I thought about contentment this week, it's just so hard sometimes to put a finger on when you feel truly content. But it's so easy to recognize the times when we feel discontent. It can't just be me. I think about times in my life where I felt really content, deeply, truly happy, thankful for where I am, where I see that what I have is what I need and what's been given to me by God. And where I've said, this is enough. And then other times where I think, well, if I just had this, or I just had that, or I was a little more like this, or they were a little more like this, or if I got a little more of this, then, then things would be better. And today I don't want to preach to you as an idealist. This is more than just uh, some ancient wisdom that's good and noble for us to pursue. We'll look at Paul as the writer of this, but we know that what was true for Paul through the power of the Holy Spirit can also be true for us. So while we'll look at specific components of Paul's contentment, we know that these things can be just as true for us through the mighty working of God in our life. So what I want us to do here is look in Philippians 4. We'll start in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. For you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am, to be, there's the word, content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and there's 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So what we'll see here in the balance of our time are these three things around contentment, our contentment, and what we can learn from Paul's contentment. The first is the status of his contentment. Next is the secret of his contentment. The third is the source of his contentment. The status, what it is, the secret, how he can have it and what's offered to us. Something that seems so elusive, so hard to hold on to in contentment that everything in our world fights against it and wants to steal contentment from us. And then the source of his contentment, where does he get it from and where can we get contentment from in the same way? First, we'll look at the status of his contentment, and I'll read this again. Our just in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So what we see here is the church in Philippi, they had just sent a gift with a guy named Epaphroditus 
to Paul, and it was a material gift. If you are familiar with the life of Paul, maybe this is new for you, he was currently in prison as he wrote this letter, chained to someone 24-7, somebody with a name like Sporus or Josephus or something. I'm sure he smelled terrible at all times, whoever he was chained to, with a death sentence hanging over his head, not sure whether he was going to die or eat next. The Apostle Paul writes this from. And we see that he says later, don't worry, I'm content. A strange thing to say for someone in such a terrible circumstance. But I don't want to pass past this because we see Paul speaking of material need and uh, needing to be provided for by the generosity of others. That there's a communal sense to Paul's contentment and that feeling supported by his people helped him reach this level of contentment. This word here, revived, it paints this beautiful picture of uh, a plant that would die in the winter and then come back in the spring even more beautiful than before. So this affection that the Philippians had for Paul to provide for him was more robust than even it was before. We'll leave that for next week. But he says this, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for whatever I've learned, I have learned in whatever situation, I am to be content. This is interesting, thinking about Paul, again, chained, persecuted. And instead of me doing 60 seconds on the life of Paul, I'll let Paul tell you about the life of Paul. This is what he would write in First and Second Corinthians about some of the things that he had faced in his life. That he was hungry and thirsty, poorly dressed, beaten, homeless, reviled, persecuted, slandered, and treated like the scum of the earth. We also see afflicted in every way, persecuted and struck down. Afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riot, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger all experienced by the Apostle Paul. And then probably this one, the biggest run here, that he would receive 39 lashes, so beaten within an inch of his life. He was beaten with rods on top of that. Stoned, stoned three times. Probably not like some of you have been stoned three times, but the different kind. Shipwrecked. He was in danger from rivers, robbers, his own people, Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at seas, from false brothers, without food, and suffered in cold and exposure. So we see Paul who says, hey, in all things, I can be content. Is this guy really stoned? Like stone stoned? Like our kind of stone? Where does this come from? Where does this come from? It's interesting when you think about the life of Paul. He was from a town called Tarsus, and Tarsus is really the seat of Stoicism. Stoicism, if you're familiar with philosophy, is this concept of the immaterial being good, the spiritual, the out there, the ether being the good things, and the things that you could touch and see in the world was uh, not to be desired. A form of Gnosticism very closely related to it. Stoicism would say that by being essentially tough and being an island unto yourself, you can find happiness and live the fullest version of your life. And here's what we would see is stoic thought on contentment of Paul's time. Paul would capture this idea that was out there, a way that the world was discipling the church, and he would pull it in and he would say, let me show you true contentment. But this is what the world at the time would say on contentment, that man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to resist the force of circumstances. And Seneca would say this, the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. So what do we see that the cultural force of the first century in the ancient Near East was? Hey, you, whatever you're going through, take it on the chin and smile. If you're really tough, if you're really stable, if you're really strong, then you can get through it. And your measure as a person whether or not you were a good or a bad moral person, was in your ability to take life as it comes 
and to breed a deep inner resiliency. Can I just say how exhausting that sounds? And how much of that do we still do today? Do we think about our own internal grit, our own internal ability to grit and bear it, to suffer through as something that makes us better and refines us? Yes, a degree of that in the Christian life, but the stoic position would be that you are sufficient in and of yourself to endure all things. And while we do have that to a degree, as I was reading this week, a pastor in New York pointed me in this direction, and I think he's right, that the way that we in our world would seek to address contentment and build more contentment into our life is really in between two poles of materialism and minimalism. When you feel discontent, you drift one of two ways usually. Materialism, I need this, I want this, I must have more of this. If there's something you think you need, go towards it, and when you get the thing, then you'll have made it. Well, all of us in the room have probably lived long enough to know that that's not always true. There's always another job, another car, another spouse, better kids out there, more enjoyment. Like there's always something on the other side. The goalposts, the end zone, just keep moving. Materialism. And then there's minimalism, the opposite side. Think about the pop culture phenomenon that the magic art of tidying up with Marie Kondo was a few years ago. She would tell people, go into your house and pick up an object and hold it up and ask the question, does this object spark joy? (laughs) And if the answer is no, then it gets given away or thrown into the trash can. But it was a life of minimalism, that by having less, that you can have more. By having fewer things in your life, that you can be free. It's interesting, right? Our minimalistic position in our life, we all kind of go between poles, would be, you know, I need to take a vacation. That's the minimalist. I need to get out of town. I need to get away. I need less. Where the materialist would say, yes, but it must be to 30A. I must go to Europe and backpack. We have these two moments where we say, this is how I fight against discontentment in my life. Things are just off. And the answer is more stuff or less stuff. And I would posit to you here, pose this uh, thought, that there are three common assaults on our contentment. Probably more than three, but three in these big buckets. We'll spend a little bit of time. The first is this. It's a temptation to abundant possession. I need stuff. I need stuff. I need more. I'm not happy because I don't have enough. Well, we see this spoken to very well in the Bible in two places. One, in the life of David. Immediately after David was caught in adultery with Bathsheba, and then he killed Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, by sending him out into battle and then withdrawing the troops so that he would be killed, commanding his murder. We see David attempt to cover up and hide this, and then Nathan, the prophet, came and rebuked him. And he told this beautiful story where he talked about someone who uh, had one lamb and then a rich person who had a bunch of stuff and they threw a feast. And you would assume in the story in the way that David assumed is that the rich man would kill his lamb to feed his guests, but instead that he took the lamb of the poor man. And David says, ah, who did that? This is such a terrible thing. And Nathan said, in the ultimate gotcha of the Bible, one of them, he said, you are that man. And we see David's sin was out of this insatiable desire to have more. But it's not like David had nothing. He had a ton. And that's what we see God speak to David through Nathan. He says this, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. God is saying, David, you had so much, and I even gave you more, and it still wasn't enough. 
this insatiable desire to acquire more things. It kills our contentment. We see this in 1 Timothy 6. I love this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's like a recipe for us. Godliness, contentment, great gain. One without the other cheapens it. If you have godliness but you don't have contentment, you have a temptation to this, to get more things, to acquire more. If you have contentment but you don't have godliness, you have this empty nihilism, like nothing in the world matters. All this stuff is going to turn to dirt anyway, and even me, I'll be dirt. There's this unspiritual realm that's uh, neglected in people's lives when we're made to be fully spiritual beings, integrated into our human life. He says this, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. A fascinating thing that Paul would write to a young protege, Timothy here, to pass along to his churches and then to pass along to us some almost 2,000 years later. We would see this, that there's something in us that the Lord would command and say, hey, where you are right now, it's good. And you can be satisfied. The second thing we do is compare ourselves to others. We compare ourselves to others. Robert did a great job a few weeks ago preaching about comparison uh, in the first sermon and then a few weeks ago, again, in this series. You'll find a lot of that content there. I'm not gonna spend a ton of time here, but I do wanna hold it up because it does attempt to steal our contentment. I mean, we constantly measure ourselves against other people. If you live in the same world that I do, you know that that's true. You hold yourself up to others. Is my job better than theirs? Is my family better than theirs? Do I have nicer things than they do? You open your phone and you get on any form of social media and it's constantly a measuring stick of where you are and where someone else is. And it is exhausting. No wonder we can't feel content when we subject ourselves to so much that can make us feel discontent, less than, as if we don't have enough. I do this uh, a lot with the people that I meet in the young adult ministry that I lead here along with Lily Coral. We uh, do a lot of pastoral counseling and it's a common theme for us with young adults. They feel so, um, like so unequipped sometimes, so unsatisfied with the early season of life. And we had a lot of young people on the 11 o'clock service, hello friends. But here's the deal, like for a lot of young people, they want to start in life where their parents finished in life. You want to have some form of recreational vehicle, like a boat or something. You want to have an extra house on the side. Well, guess what? It took time for those things to develop. And that's a common theme for us, but we see that, yes, in young people, but in all people, is that we always compare ourselves to others. It's this part of us, good biology, good neurology up here that Satan has used to make us really enemies with one another at the end of the day to cheer for someone else's failure so that you can feel more successful. What a terrible thing that is. But if I'll be honest, I'm there often in my sin. The third is this, a drive for incessant achievement. Incessant is important there because I do think that a drive for achievement is good. It's a little bit of my wiring, but I do think that the Lord would have some things for us, like Colossians 3.23, right? And everything you do, work as if you're working for the Lord. Matthew 25, be a good steward of your life. God's given you abilities and he wants to tell you, well done, good and faithful servant. Like we need to go and to do. The world is hurting and the hope of the gospel is the only cure 
So we need to take it places and honor the Lord in our work and in our friendship and our evangelism in everything that we do. Look, speaking of work, we got a serve day here coming up. It's the Saturday before Thanksgiving. It's a great opportunity for us as a church to be mobilized, to serve with great ministry partners all around the city of Jackson. It is something that you will not want to miss if you're here. If you've got kids down the hallway, like we will put them to work too. A great opportunity for the church to be the church and for us to do some work in a really godly way. But we find this, that there's this incessant drive for achievement. Like I must accomplish more. Nothing's ever good enough. The goalposts keep moving. You can never be happy with the work that you've done. You can never be happy with the contribution you made. You can never rest and look and say, you know what, this was good and this is okay. An incessant drive for achievement we have as Americans. And Jeremiah Burroughs is a 17th century Puritan. He wrote this. It's a beautiful book, booklet. You can find it online. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And this is what he wrote in like 1650. So think about the world in 1650 and the world today. Many men think that when they're troubled and they've not got contentment, it's because they have but a little in the world. But if they had more, they should be content. That's just as if a man were hungry and to satisfy his craving stomach, he should hold open his mouth to take in the wind and then should think that the reason why he's not satisfied is because he's not gotten enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the wind cannot satisfy a craving stomach. Yet there really is a severe madness in which the wind will take a man, in which the wind will take a man, takes in by opening his mouth, will soon satisfy a craving stomach ready to starve, as if all the comforts in the world can satisfy our hungry souls. It's fascinating to think about. Jeremiah Burroughs puts it so well. It's like we're hungry and we say, I need something to fill me. And we open our mouth and expect for something to happen. The wind can't fill this deep longing of hunger in us. And in the same way, the material world lacks an ability to feel our deep sense of contentment. So what do we do? Paul directs us to this, the secret of his contentment. The secret. He would say this, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned, there's the word, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What do we find here that Paul says, my contentment that I've found in what every circumstance, in everything, we see Paul here, he's painting a picture in these poles, right? Just like we drift between materialism and minimalism, Paul would say, in my life, I've experienced great things and terrible things. And you have too in your life abundance, need, high, low, plenty, hunger. And Paul says what? In all of this, I have found contentment. How? How has he done this? Well, he talks about this secret, the secret that he's found in contentment. When I think about a secret, I think about secret societies. And that was very common in the time of the Bible. There were, in the ancient Near East, all these cult pagan temples where people would do weird things like have orgies and sacrifice children and creepy, creepy stuff. And anyone could participate in these public worship services, but there were uh, special things reserved only for those that were on the inside. It was the secret initiating, the secret assembly. And here's the interesting part. That's the word, the Greek word, that Paul uses here to describe 
how he's learned the secret. Someone would say, yes, I've been initiated into this cult. I've been initiated into this cult, so I'm on the inside. I have the secret knowledge. Y'all know some stuff, but I know all the stuff. And here's what Paul would say for the Christian, that we too can learn the secret. We can be on the inside of how to have contentment. God does not keep contentment from us and saying, hey, try your best to figure it out. Act like a stoic, act like a minimalist, act like a materialist and figure it out somewhere along the way. Instead, the Lord says, I have a way for you to be content. A secret that he invites us in. When I think about secret societies, I don't think about cult, temple, worship thing, because that's not the world we live in. I think about this movie, The Little Rascals. Uh, My great-grandparents lived in Okolona, Mississippi, North Mississippi, shout out if you're a North Mississippi person. But they uh, had three things on VHS. It was uh, some of you young people, VHS is like the block you put it in your, in your thing, VCR. Uh, they had The Little Rascals, Flubber, and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> so not great options. So I watched a lot, a lot of The Little Rascals. And if you're familiar with the premise of the movie, you know that uh, there's a group of guys who form a secret society, and it becomes a tension throughout the movie, a group called the He-Man Woman Haters Club. <laughs> And they had secret signs and only men were allowed in. And there was this great angst among one of the characters on whether or not he actually you know, wanted to disband the club because he was interested romantically in a woman. So we see this secret. There's an in and there's an out. But that's the beautiful part about this is there's no out for the Christian, only an in. But it's something that we would have to learn, something we'd have to initiate ourselves into. So what is this for Paul and what is this for us? How can we find this secret of contentment? Well, this is what Paul would say a chapter before in Philippians 3. That the aim of his life, the things that he would do, the reason he does them is for this. That I may know him and know the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And this is where the readers are probably reading along and they're thinking, ah, yes, this feels very stoic. This feels like what we're supposed to do. Right? So I'm taking my, Christian, my Christianity, my Christian worldview, and I'm marrying it with my worldview of the culture. And this is where Paul chops that and moves it to two sides. See, the Stoic would say, ah, yes, beat me up. Like, I need to take on the resiliency that life brings. But they would never subject themselves to suffering or humiliation or embarrassment. They would never say, yes, you out there, whether you're worthy of it or not, in the world's eyes, I will count you as more important than myself and exercise Christian humility. A Stoic would never take that on. But we find in Paul that the secret is becoming like Jesus. And in changing the scorecard, in not putting our values in the ways of the world, the ways that we would find contentment in the world, and instead the ways that we would find contentment in Christ, it has changed Paul's character. And we see that there's this rich contentment that he gets. And I want to show you four types of contentment we can see here really quickly. It kind of paints a box for us. It hymns Paul in these four corners that Paul has physical contentment. Hey, I don't have a lot. I'm suffering. But I know that, God, you give me what I need. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. What is that? Maybe it was a temptation. Maybe it was an illness. As somebody who's got a chronic illness, like I would love to not have to deal with sometimes splitting pain that makes my 
head want to explode and projectile vomiting from time to time. I feel good, Michael. I'm not going to throw up on you today. But that's, uh, you know, I've got that in my life, right? Like we all have things physically within our person. Maybe we're getting old. I feel like I'm getting old. I'm getting random joint pain in my life now. Whatever it is, we wish we looked differently. We wish that we felt differently. Whatever it is in our life, whatever your suffering is or your dissatisfaction, Paul would say, my contentment and my physical state is good in Christ. The next, he would say that his personal, his internal contentment can be found in Christ. Remember, Paul, someone who is celebrated and despised. We look at social contentment, celebrated and despised. But he found that regardless of whether he was being uh, held up as an apostle and loved and served, or whether he was being treated like he was the scum of the earth, he knew that regardless of what people did to him, how people perceived him, that on the inside he had integrity and his contentment because of who the Lord was and who the Lord said he was. And then he had the spiritual contentment that he knew that God would provide for him, that he knew that the Lord would be faithful. And even in his moments of doubt, this is an extension for us, we can take those things to the Lord because he holds us. He invites us to know him more. So take those things to the Lord. That's why I love our church. We're so open to people who are on a spiritual journey, people who are doubting and questioning the cynic and the skeptic. We don't want you to stay there, but we want you to grow. And I'm so thankful that the Lord gives us a deep spiritual contentment, that he provides for us in Jesus on the cross, and that we have this ability to give our eternity to him and be content. And the last thing as we round towards home is this. It's the source of his contentment. We've seen the status, what it looks like for him, what it looks like for us. We've seen the secret that God invites us in. But what's the source behind the secret? Well, this is where we find 413. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we've probably all seen this verse used and abused on t-shirts for people that are like going for a PR on a bench press. And like I've seen it tattooed on the inside of people's lip, which is creepy anyway, but especially that. Um, I guess you can endure the pain to get that tattooed on you with that verse in mind. But what we see here is this all things again. We see in every circumstance mentioned earlier, we see in all things. So again, we're painting the poles here. High and low, abundance and need. That he can be content in all of those. And as this is the source, we look at three specific sources. The source of his personhood. I told you about that deep internal contentment. Where does that come from? How do we get that? Henry Nouwen writes in Life of the Beloved, these three things, that people are tempted to place their identity in these three lies, that I am what I have, I am what I do, and I am what people say or think of me. These three lies, if you're honest with yourself, you've believed them, and you've probably believed them all at the same time and in different seasons in different ways. But we can reduce ourselves down to this and feel discontent. I am what I have, my possession, my influence. I am what I do, my contribution into the world, the things that people need me for. That's where my purpose is. That's where I find my contentment. And that I am what other people do or think of me. Am I loved? Am I admired? I'll only be content. But what's the problem here? It's ever-changing. It's ever-changing and exhausting. Why not anchor ourselves in an unchanging God who would say, I see you and I love you. You are invaluable to me. 
so much so that I would lay down my life for you. And because of that, you are a son and you're a daughter and you're a co-heir. The beautiful promises of scripture, they anchor us internally in our moments where we feel tempted to consider ourselves only the composition of what others would say or think about us. That the enemy, as he whispers in your ear at night when your head's on the pillow, you're not enough. No one loves you. You'll never do enough. You'll never be good enough. We instead can anchor ourselves to Jesus Christ as a hope for our soul and see that we are far more than what the world would say. We are what the Lord would say. The second, we see that this is source for his provision and our provision. Yes, material provision, but provision for us to find our contentment in our best days and our worst days in the Lord. Provision in Christian contentment looks like this. He will give you exactly what you need for exactly the thing you're facing, exactly when you need it. That's contentment. That we can trust that God's going to give us what we need. I think about provision like this. Sometimes we think about provision as stuff, but it's really circumstantial in our life. That we feel equipped and up to the task. When I started working here in 2015, Woodland Hills Baptist was still in this building with us, and they would have a service before our service in the sanctuary. And it was my responsibility, along with a couple of other people, to come and to move the equipment that uh, Woodland Hills would use here. So the piano was on the ground over there, kind of obstructing that door. There was like a big communion table right here on wheels and a pulpit. And if you were here, kind of in that window before Woodland Hills left, you'd catch us moving furniture around. And uh, that was one of the jobs that was given to me, frankly, because I'm the size of a small horse. Like, I'm good at moving things. Like, I'm big. It's a gift for me. Uh, It doesn't really flex into some of my other giftings. I'd like to think that I'm smarter than just a grunt sometimes. But on Sunday mornings at, uh, you know, 1045-ish, That's what I would do, and I'd help move some things out of here. But at the same time, the band would be up here rehearsing, and no worship leader we ever had would come up to me. This never happened. No one said, hey, Daniel, um, our drummer just fell out, so I need you to, like, come and, and get on the drums. No one ever invited me to play drums. Why? Because I'm white, like so white, like dreadfully white. I have Colhans on right now, and I know that, like, in some grid, there's Colhan ownership and being good at drums, like, in opposite directions, like... The more you own, the worse you are. That's not a thing that I had. God God has not provided that in me. But I felt up to the task of moving furniture because I had a gift mix there. And this is what we see in contentment. This is what we find in Paul. This is what we find in Philippians 4. This is what we find in 4.13. That in your best days and your worst days, your value is not your circumstance. It is what the Lord has said and done for you. And in his provision, we can rest. He has given us what we need in our joy and given us what we need in our suffering to draw us to a place of security and contentment in him. And the last thing is this, it's a source for our power. Our power, where do we do this? Is this just self-psychotherapy from the first century? Or is there really a power that can draw us in our high moments where we're tempted to believe that we got ourselves in a great place, we're responsible for our blessing, we're responsible for keeping ourselves there, and in our discontent, the moment where we feel unworthy and like nothing's ever going to get better, like we should just stop living. Where is this power that can pull us in both places to contentment? And it's in Christ. This is what Paul wrote in verse 12, and I love it. He would say, I know how to be brought low in Christ. 
in Christ, he's there with me when I'm low. I know how to abound when I'm on top, when the world's going for me. I'm in Christ. My security, my person, my worth, my work is in Christ. In every circumstance, any circumstance in Christ, he's learned the secret through Christ and facing plenty in Christ and hunger in Christ and abundance in Christ and need in Christ. In Christ, Paul has an anchor and we have an anchor for this deep work of contentment where we look at our life where it is and we think about where we want to be. Is what the Lord does for us enough? Can we put our full person in him? Can we really rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Your ability to do that will impact your ability to be content in this life. I want to invite the band to come back up, and as they come up, if y'all stand with me, I want to point to this final summary. We see this, that to live in Christian contentment, you don't really need to love the bad in your life. This is not stoicism. This is not, hey, grit and bear it, everything will be okay. The Lord knows you and he knows your sufferings and he's near to the brokenhearted. You don't have to love the bad things in your life, but he's there with you in those. You don't need to hate the good things in your life, although you really might should love some of it a little less. In our seasons of abundance, let's remember the provider, but you don't have to hate the bad things. You don't have to hate the good things in your life. Like God's given them to you as a blessing. Enjoy your life. John 10, 10, the thieves come to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus come to give life, life to the full, abundant life. So enjoy your life. But know you've got to look and remember the one above and behind all the things in your life. I want to close with this quote uh, from a writer, a thinker that I really admire. He writes this uh, in a book that is called Can You Drink the Cup? He compares our life to the cup of wrath that Jesus Christ drank on the cross in payment for sin, that Jesus had great moments in his life and great suffering in his life, greater suffering than anyone else will ever suffer. And he paints this picture, this writer does, of the cup of life being this mix of what you have, the good and the bad, your circumstance, your gifting, your suffering, all the things. And this is what we find here. He says, drinking the cup of life makes our own everything that we're living. It's saying, this is my life, but also it's saying, I want this to be my life. Drinking the cup of life is fully appropriating and internalizing our own unique existence with all of its sorrows and all of its joys. Now, it's not easy to do this. For a long time, we might not feel capable of accepting our own life. We might keep fighting for a better or at least a different version of our life. Often, there's a deep protest against our faith that rises up inside of us. We didn't choose our country. We didn't choose our parents. We didn't choose the color of our skin. We didn't choose so many other things. And we didn't even choose our character or our intelligence or physical appearance or our mannerisms. Sometimes we want to do every possible thing to change the circumstances of our life. We wish we were in another body or we lived in another time or that we even had another mind. And there's a cry that can come out of our depths that would say, why do I have to be this person? I didn't ask for it and God, I don't want it. But as we gradually come to befriend our own reality, to look with compassion at our own sorrows and our own joys, and as we're able to discover the unique potential of our own way of being in the world, we can move beyond our protests, we can put the cup of our life to our lips and drink it slowly, carefully, but fully. 
often in difficult circumstances, we wish to comfort people. We say, well, this is sad that it's happened to you, but try to make the best of it. But quote, making the best of it is not what drinking the cup is about. Drinking our cup is not simply adapting ourselves to a bad situation and then trying to use it as well as we can. Drinking our cup is a hopeful, courageous, and self-confident way of living. It's standing in the world with head tall, solidly rooted in the knowledge of who we are, facing the reality that surrounds us and responding to it from our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and I'm grateful, God, for every man and woman and child in this room or the way that you know them and you love them and you form them. And Lord, we thank you that you offer us contentment. God, we feel so dismayed sometimes, so pulled in so many directions. But Lord, you unite us to your truth. Lord, it's because of your death on the cross. You saw us in our great need and our sin. You came into the world. You lived the perfect life we never could. Lord, you died on the cross, paying a payment we could never pay. And Lord, you rose in power on the third day, proving that you were who you said you were. And now you're seated at the right hand, reigning. And Holy Spirit, you live inside of us. And God, for everyone that calls on your name and knows you and loves you here, God, I thank you for the gift of faith. And Lord, I'd ask today that you would equip us. God, help us strive for contentment. This thing that feels so far away in our incessant need, Lord, to, to store riches up. And Lord, to prove ourselves an endless jockey. God, would we instead find our contentment in you, that we are yours, that you've made us new. Lord, would we, like Paul, strive towards knowing more of the secret, Lord, that you offer to us peace. Lord, for so many in their best days, Lord, would you help them find humility in you, how to use what you've given them for the benefit of others, and Lord, in worship for you. And God, for those that are suffering and hard-pressed, God, would you show them that you're a very present help in time of need, one that loves them deeply and sits with them in their pain. Lord, we love you and we give you ourselves, God. Help us know you more and walk in contentment. We ask these things in your great name. Amen. We always want to open our altar after this. Uh, it's just a physical space, but perhaps a spiritual sign for you, an outward expression of an inward reality. We'll have pastors up front who'd love to pray with you, regardless of whether it's about this or anything else. It'd be a privilege for us to pray with you. Let's respond in worship as we sing a song about gratitude and as we pray together.